Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week I'm speaking to Chris Sutcliffe, host of the Media Voices podcast and freelance media journalist. In the course of our conversation we discuss the wider world of media, Media Voices podcast and media journalism, and talk about how the football media fits in within this more generalised context. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure and, if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. If you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. Next week we'll be talking to Matthew Barrett, co-founder of Gold Click. But before that is Chris Sutcliffe, the world of media and football's place within it. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Chris Sutcliffe, host of Media Voices podcast. Chris, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really excited to have you on. We've just been talking off air about how, how much I enjoy your podcast and I recommend to my listeners all the time that they, they head over to Media Voices and, and find out what's going on. That's very kind. You don't need to bribe me like that, though. <laughs> I like to start off all of these podcast episodes with something of a, a situational question, giving the listener a, a good idea of how it is you ended up where you are and what it is that you sort of do as a, as a, as a general day-to-day job. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing what you're doing, because obviously you're not working specifically in sports media, you're working in the media in general. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing that. So it all sort of began when I was fresh out of doing my interactive journalism course at City University and just happened to meet the editor of a B2B media um, journalism site in a pub. And, you know, he was drunk enough that he invited me to come in for an interview the next day. Uh, it was very black books. And uh, yeah, I got that job, spent three years there sort of learning about the business of media and as well as discussing sort of the the ethical side of it, how places actually make money, which is, you know, kind of more of a pressing question in 2018 than it's ever been before, what with business models collapsing left and right. So from there, um, unfortunately, sort of it was a victim of its own success. The event side of the business got taken over by Haymarket and they cut the editorial team loose. So since then, I've been freelancing at various places, uh, had a weekly column talking about the media and the business of media in the New European, uh, writing for a bunch of tech sites. But really, sort of, we wanted to continue some of what the media briefing was doing. So myself, my editor, Peter Houston, and our editorial assistant, Esther, we decided that we were going to negotiate for the rights to the podcast, which I'd launched while we were there. And it's continued under the name of Media Voices. It's coming up on our second anniversary of doing it, specifically as Media Voices now. And in that time, we've continued to do some analysis around business of media, really talking to some fascinating people within the industry. And we like to practice what we preach. So we've also tried to grow it as a media business during that time. So over the last couple of years, well, rather over the last couple of months, we've started doing live shows, we started doing events, and we're just about to launch our first report, which is kind of a nice testament to you can grow a media business if you kind of stick with it and don't mind it taking over your weekends. You, you know how long it takes to edit this podcast and we've been doing it for about two years at this point. I dread to think how many man hours I've wasted just trying to get the, you know, the, the hiss and the pop and the crackle out of every single piece of audio that we have. Mm. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that, that obviously you were, you were let, let go by the company you were working for. 
Do you think that that's a general trend within media journalism in general? Is it the case that most media journalists now are freelancing? And do you think that represents something of a a lack of concern within the broader media to talk about media issues? So I think about 18 months ago, this kind of came to a, a head. You know, the media briefing wasn't there anymore. A couple of the really high profile media analysis sites in the US also closed. And they really felt like there was this dearth of critical independent media coverage. There's still, you know, me- the Guardian still has a media desk. Uh, basically, all the big nationals do keep an eye on what their rivals are doing. But for the most part, there doesn't seem to be even as much coverage as there was three years ago when I sort of started. Um, and honestly, it feels like it's to the industry's detriment because you don't really get people, you know, pricking the kind of the pomposity of these of these tabloids when they say, oh, you know, we've, we've built a business model on scale. And you don't really get people saying, well, actually, that doesn't work anymore. You know, scale only really benefits the platforms. So in that sense, I feel like there is, you know, freelance media journalism still has a yeah, kind of a, a key uh, place within the industry. But I think we're going to get into that in a later question. I don't think that we steer it at all. We are almost sort of the backseat drivers. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting place to be. Like it, the industry changes so rapidly and priorities change so quickly that it's, it's a fascinating place to comment, you know, from, but you're right. I think it's just because of what's happening with journalism and journalism jobs specifically, media journalism is just kind of another casualty of this ongoing collapse of the kind of the journalism economy. Tell us a little bit more about Media Voices podcast. You've given us a little bit of a sense of the history, how it started. What is it that you guys do on a weekly basis? What are the sorts of things that you do on the podcast and what sort of things are you doing outside of the podcast? So it's a it's a weekly media-focused podcast. So as part of that, we we interview a special guest every week. We've had everybody from, you know, the editor of Glamour UK down to, you know, podcast historians. So really running the gamut from people who are in the trenches thinking about the actual strategy to the people who are, you know, higher up and sort of managing day-to-day operations of a huge media business. So we, we tend to get those guys on. We'll chat with them for about 15, 20 minutes each week. Um, it then falls to one or other one or other of us to try and edit that down to a sort of 15, 16 minute section because we're very aware of creep. You know, we, we're aware that our commuters only have a, well, our listeners only have a commuter length amount of time to listen. So we don't want to monopolize that time. Uh, but we'll also then talk for maybe 10, 12 minutes around uh, the news that week around the media. Peter describes it as giving the news and views from around the media world. So that could be anything from, you know, you know, how is Facebook fucked up this week to, you know, how is, you know, what, what are the new priorities for the nationals? Are they pushing into events? And then some off the wall stuff as well. So, you know, if we think that Snapchat's doing something particularly ridiculous, then usually Esther will go on about a, a 15 minute diatribe about that. And then we have to try and cut it down. So, yeah, it really does, because there is so much media news each week and each of us have our own sort of specialties and our own bugbears. I, I think it's a sort of a, a nice mix. The feedback we've got from our audiences and the audience that we had at the um, the live show we did up in MAGFest early this year was that there's kind of a, a nice conversational tone to it. And because we all do bring different backgrounds into it, you know, Peter's been in the magazine world for, you know, for ages at this point. And myself and Esther are more you know, recent, but I've been thinking about journalism basically my whole life. So I come at, at it much more from a sort of journalism and ethics point of view than, than the other guys do. So there's a kind of a nice conversational mix there, I think. Um, outside of that, we, you know, we, we do other freelance work under our names. You know, people know we're loosely affiliated with this and it does actually have an, an impact on the kind of work we can do for companies because obviously we have to sign NDAs every now and then. But for the most part, it's, you know, we're all relatively sort of independent operators. Um, under the sort of the aegis of media voices, though, when we do come back together, we, like I said, we're launching that report and we're, we've just sold kind of off a sponsored set of podcasts. So it's really about kind of 
trying to build this up into a sort of a, a viable media business. And we don't kid ourselves. We know it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's never going to be an empire. But we, we like to think that eventually, well, it's already washing its face. And we like to think that we'll be able to take it you know, bigger still. Yeah. And I think with the three of you so obviously aware of everything that's going on in the media world, I think there's no better group of people to actually make a media business work. One of the best things about the Media Voices podcast for me is that is that intro that you talk about, the, the looking at the news and views from around the, the world, the, the media news. I really enjoy that aspect in particular because you guys, you guys like whistle stop tour everything. So if anything's happening that I should know about, I, I learn about it in 15 minutes. So a couple of questions there. The first one is, you've mentioned already that obviously you guys have to sign NDAs every once in a while, but you still get a real sense that you guys, you guys are independent um, and you have your own takes on things. So my question would be, to what extent do you feel responsible for the media world in, in a way that it's not quite so much, here we are just telling you what's going on. You do kind of I don't want to say pontificate because that's pejorative, but you do you do give your opinions on on what's going on. So, yeah, the first question is that: to what extent do you feel responsible, and and, and do you think that there's a sort of ethical injunction for people in the in the media to to kind of, like you said before, direct it in a certain way? Yeah, that's it's really interesting. I mean, I felt like the the you know when I, the reason I got into journalism was I was sort of I, you know there's a there's a glamour to it, and you know you do there is a sort of kind of social responsibility that I think a lot of people want to live up to. And you do kind of feel a responsibility every so often to push back against the people who are who treat it more as a, a business than a sort of social responsibility. So my uh, one of my flatmates told me the other day they were talking to somebody who who works at the Sun who said, you know, ov- their overriding priority is to make money, so not to sort of deliver news to the you know kind of objective fact to the to the populace, but actually to to make money. And you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that's sort of that's that's one of my my big bugbears is I feel like just appealing to confirmation bias, A, isn't a viable business model because you're just running down the clock on kind of dwindling print audience anyway. But also it it, it alleviates you or rather it sort of um it means that you're not actually delivering on the promise of journalism. So in that sense, we do feel a responsibility to um, to actually talk about this kind of stuff and maybe make some of these things that are tacitly acknowledged within the industry when you go to you know uh, events that are Chatham House rules, bring them into sort of public discourse because you know it's very easy to it's very very easy to armchair CEO some of these big companies, um, but it's actually it's I think it's important that more people talk about this. You know, we've for ages we've held the opinion that all journalists need to understand their employers' business models. Because if you don't, then you don't really understand how you can make the, those businesses sustainable. You can't launch new products. You can't pitch new services for them. And ultimately, sort of running them into irrelevancy, which is, you know, at this time of vast misinformation and disinformation online, it's absolutely the last thing you need to do. You know, newspapers and everybody need to be more visible. They need to be more strident about the fact that they are you know, delivering fact and, and, um, and truth, you know, and actually speaking truth to power. So, yeah, I think in, in that sense, we do feel kind of a responsibility to do this kind of stuff, even if it is in a very, 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 very tiny way. You know, we don't kid ourselves that we're in any way kind of influential beyond the fact that we do have some kind of relatively high profile listeners. But I don't think that we're, we're actually having an effect beyond actually making some of these views more, a little bit, a tiny bit more mainstream. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously I work for, as a freelance journalist, I work for a number of outlets and I have no idea about the business models of any of those outlets. And, yeah. and that's never a conversation that's had. A quick aside, have you been following at all the Football Leaks stuff that's been coming out of Der Spiegel in the, in the last few days? No, what's that? So Der Spiegel... I mean, obviously, Desh Beagle came out with the Cristiano Ronaldo stuff probably about a month ago now. But they've also been able to get they've they've I've, I think hacked 
an employee of Manchester City Group's emails and, and ended up getting a huge amount of documentation from from there. And they're 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 releasing every day this week. I think, or maybe four days this week, a piece just looking at um, it's just basically investigative journalism, looking at the the leaks and seeing what what's going on. But it's really struck me as something that is seeing Desh Beagle doing all of this investigative stuff does strike me a little bit as though there isn't as much of that sort of stuff going on now and I don't know whether or not you'd have any any thoughts on that because that, again that sort of strikes me as being sort of this is responsible journalism this is journalism doing the things that you expect journalists to do yeah absolutely I think that one of the the big trends we've seen over the last couple of years particularly in terms of investigative journalism is that there isn't necessarily a dearth of it going on it's that the newspapers have kind of lost the power to influence them. You know, I think I don't think anybody would argue that over the last couple of years, the fourth estate has lost the, the power it once had. You know, it was the fourth estate term was coined because, you know, a, 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 somebody was basically saying, well, they are as powerful as, you know, the politicians themselves. They are they are there to hold the other kind of the other three powers in check. And I, I think that there's no lack of investigative journalism lately. It's just it isn't having as much of a tangible effect. You know, whether that is because, you know, the, the people who are in power are really hammering the fact that, you know, there's fake news and there's bias within the media and sort of really taking the sting out that way. But it's interesting, the, 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 the Spiegel leaks, because, I mean, from what you're saying, is it is it having an effect? Are more people talking about this? Is it is it sort of becoming more, you know, open? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing is precisely when you start talking about something like football fandom in that way, There's there's been two responses, one of which is all football is corrupt yeah so uh, who cares everyone knows this is going on this is just literally giving flavor to to the corruption we already knew is there the other thing is i think just people just don't care and, yeah. and i think whether or not that's to do with that sort of agglomeration of, of just news the news cycle just being endless and endless and endless and, and even with things like i guess it's a, it's a cliched point to make but trump in america when you have that kind of news cycle as an everyday news cycle i guess this sort of thing sort of just seems much much of the same and you kind of think well what can i do yeah um, maybe maybe it's more of a political point in that regard i think so there's a there's a great piece in the atlantic i think it was last week from megan garber who's basically saying the audience attention is now a political act you know you because the news cycle is so quick and it's so rapid and it changes so fundamentally day to day actually choosing where you know to direct your audience's attention and even as the public choosing where to you know give your attention is a it's an outright political act now it's not a passive activity mm. by you know going to the outlets that you trust and you choose and that you want to support you are making a political statement in a way that you weren't necessarily doing even what five six years ago mm. so it's interesting to hear that the kind of the the football fandom is similar in that way mm. yeah no definitely um right i'll try and pull us back onto the running order <laughs> sorry about this but yeah we're talking about the the intro that you do where you cover the current events and media news in your time doing this you've said you've done it for two years now what sort of sense have you got as to the shifts and trends of the media are there any trends that you would say have stood out to you or is it just been much of the same for those two years so i think over the last we, we've, we've been doing this sort of the podcast for three years it's been media voices so independent completely independent for two and in that time the you know the prevailing trends have been this this pushback from news publishers against the platforms because for the longest time the trend has been towards distributed publishing which is it absolutely has its place um uh, cory hike from mike said you know there is absolutely value in reaching your audiences on the platforms on which they already exist because that's how you you know reach the the, the most number of people possible you know you're the the most viable audience in effect um but at the same time you are handing over a, a huge amount of power to those platforms in how your audience is packaged presented effectively the, the context for all this kind of stuff so if there's been one trend over the last couple of years it's been 
publishers really rushing onto platforms like Facebook. And then we're now seeing this kind of retreat as a result of things like the kind of the video ad metrics scandal, which kind of broke uh, the other week. And sort of just a general mistrust of these other environments, which weren't really paying their way. So now over the next couple of years, we this part of the report we've just written is kind of very forward facing. What are the opportunities for 2019? And a lot of it is the tail end of the trends that have been going on for the last three, four years. You know, publishers are now re, really trying to re-engage audiences. They're, they recognize that they do have a very core fandom for the most part, and they really want to um, activate those those core audiences who will continue to pay rather than just trying to reach you know, vast uh, vast audiences at scale. So if there's been one prevailing trend, it's definitely that one. For the rest, it's actually still relatively messy. You know, there isn't one particular path to success. So when you talk to everybody from, you know, uh, I, I spoke to a bunch of people who are doing kind of um, ad networks, and they th- see that as being the way forward. You know, if you look at what The Guardian was doing with Pangea, for instance, and, you know, the, the Telegraph, and basically everyone doing around private marketplaces for advertising, they see that as the way forward. Meanwhile, a lot of other people say, well, you know, that's a great addition, but it's all about subscriptions. So it's still very messy trying to, people trying to find the way forward. And I, I interviewed the, the analyst, um, Lucy Kung, not too long ago, and she has this analogy of, we're about to see which publishers are going to make it across this valley of death. So it doesn't matter kind of matter the means by which they make it across. But this year and next year, to some extent, is going to be kind of what Shane Smith advice called the, you know, the great bloodbath of media business models, because there just isn't enough money to go around anymore. And so the ones who make it to the other side will be the ones that survive and kind of outlast the rest. That's cheerful thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I I wonder as well, if maybe a little aside here, to what extent do you think that, and a lot of the time I get the impression when I listen to the Media Voices podcast, is this idea that people just do things because they think they're the right thing to do. And because there's a sort of public consciousness that things like Facebook or Twitter or whatever are profitable platforms therefore we should use them without any real thought about what's going on to what extent do you think that sort of contributed to that that crossing of the valley of death in the in the sense that everyone sort of thought that media is going to be a easily profitable business so they jumped into it and then they've realized very quickly i mean you've mentioned the 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 sort of pivot to video and then the rapid pivot away from video that was seemingly entirely facebook's fault and maybe another aspect on that is that obviously having gone through a period of austerity etc recently in in this country to what extent do you think that's going to contribute to that as well in terms of you said there's not a huge amount of money around do you think we're at a point where business acumen is a point where everyone wants to jump onto media but like you say that the money is going the other way as well yeah no certainly i think that your 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 point about there only being sort of a certain amount of discretionary spending it's absolutely correct if you look at you know every year that reuters do a paying for news online report and it's always kind of very depressing reading you know single digit figures across most of europe for people who actually pay for news online whereas you know double digit figures paying for things like spotify subscriptions or netflix so news as a commodity unbundled from entertainment doesn't really seem to be enticing many people to pay for it which is you know a, a huge um existential threat i think it was uh, chris duncan over at news uk who basically said there's only going to be 10 international english language news brands who'll be able to survive because you know the, the amount of money that people will will pay will only support that many which is kind of terrifying when you think about it because it has you know huge implications for plurality and kind of representation and you know representation of di- different people's viewpoints um so yeah there's only I think that that kind of is one of those big existential trends that we're going to see really come to bear in 2019. Mm. What I find interesting about all of this this move back towards subscriptions is that you know it, it is cyclical in the sense that 
subscription model is basically what newspapers were, right? And and with the newspaper subscription model, you got this idea that you could have a parochial political view. You didn't have the right to all information. You You knew what it was that you liked and you went there. And then obviously the internet blew that out of the water because there was this assumption that everything should be available to me. And I can read all of the news articles that I like from the outlets that I like. I can read all the news articles from the outlets I don't like as well. And I think there's an expectation that that that's happening. Do you think we'll shift back then to a different way of consuming information when when subscription models become almost de facto the way or, or at least some kind of payment for the information that you're consuming is going to come back in? Yeah, there's definitely something to be said with the idea that well, you know that you're never going to convince everybody to pay for news online because you know, people people are habituated to getting their news, their opinion, you know, whatever online for free now. And there is a, you know this huge explosion of sources you can do it. And a lot of the people who are you know now making livings off you know providing that stuff online aren't the traditional publishers. In fact, for the majority, they're not the kind of the, the niche brands who've recognised that an audience will pay for that kind of very specialised content. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the danger, which I think you kind of alluded to there is that as a lot of these newspapers do go back behind um, paywall subscription models, that there is going to be this kind of huge uh, digital news desert of people who won't pay for the quality news, so they won't necessarily get the accurate and you know objective uh, reportage that you get from, from newspapers. And so they're going to be at the mercy of that you know misinformation and disinformation online from people who are just trying to gain the system for their own benefits. Right, back to the uh, running order again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so a couple of, of questions in terms of, I think maybe going back to this notion of media awareness. So I've, I've put in here the, my experience of football media is that there isn't that much soul searching on the part of its participants in the sense that there's not a huge amount of thought about, I think there is an awareness that, you know, you have to diversify, you have to modernize and you have to, in order to, to, keep doing what you're doing but there there seems less of an awareness about the the sort of more cutting edge stuff that i'm seeing on media voices podcast so discussion of um, subscription models and the different the different models available and the different outlets that are doing it in other areas Uh, for example i've only come across one subscription model based news outlet in the uk and that closed down recently um simply because the guys who were working on it were part part well they're freelancers and they got fuller time jobs i think elsewhere in the media other other than maybe there's a liverpool i think there's a liverpool podcast called the anfield rap which is paywalled but other than that you just don't really get any of any of that and i was i was wondering why do you think that media journal is so important firstly is it because it allows outlets to to cover these these sorts of things we touched on this already with this idea that actually as soon as you start cost cutting it's going to be the media journalists who go ironically because it seems as though they're telling the the, the outlets what what they should be doing but well that's exactly what happened at the guardian yeah they cut their desk didn't they yeah yeah no it's a sort of you understand why it's it's not necessarily that something it's not necessarily something that the audience will pay for so in that sense it's absolutely right and fair that it was you know among the first uh, sections to be on the on the chopping block you know if if you, if you do kind of put the idea that survival ahead of everything is what's important, and that's absolutely a valid, um, that's absolutely a valid argument. You know, without kind of enough money coming in, you can't do the kind of very important public service journalism that you know kind of is the point of the media. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a tricky one to to pass because it's sort of you understand why people might want media journalism to or rather thinking about the media to be a sort of backroom thing absolutely you can, you can understand that people don't necessarily want to share uh, w- winning strategies because it sort of puts them at a disadvantage or rather it's a sort of disincentive to share successful strategies because then they can be cloned i mean you only have to look at what you know facebook does when it just clones everything that that, that snapchat does because it makes money and it sort of and it works for them 
Um, what was the the first part of the question was about sort of is the you know is sports media kind of what innovating to the same extent? Yeah, let's move on to that now. What's your sense of of the way that the sports media sort of fits into that? Is it as a media journalist, you have sort of these various galaxies around you where you're like, well, you know, there's sports media over there, there's music journalism over there, there's etc. And oh, well, everyone knows that music journalism is behind the curve, etc. Is there that sort of sense with with sports journalism that might be the same? Well, it was it was really interesting last night. So my, I'm the only one in my family who doesn't work to some extent in sport. You know, my dad was the CEO of the Hong Kong Football Association. My brother is a leisure consultant, and he used to, you know, he's been affiliated with you know Liverpool Uni, working on kind of their sports facilities. And you know, my, my step was a leisure consultant as well. So they all work in sport to the to some extent. And so when I was asking them questions about this in kind of prep for this interview, I expected to get responses around you know, well, are uh, sport journalism kind of business models evolving but instead we went back to the kind of the age-old questions that were you know what is the point of punditry you know what is kind of how do we increase representation you know how, how do we make uh football coverage much more proportionate and kind of representational and it kind of threw me a little bit because i honestly went into it expecting that they'd have you know expect um, they'd have questions about you know everything from you know how do you know would they pay for instance for um football coverage on the guardian you know they they guardian has a membership scheme but telegraph's just put its kind of rugby coverage behind a paywall so would people pay for that specialized football comment and analysis and we immediately went back on to you know what is the point of punditry so i think in one sense the conversation around sports journalism is still exactly you know what it was you know kind of who should we who should we have commenting on this you know are some journalists biased against teams you know very represent um kind of very similar to how people think about bias in wider media but in terms of kind of actual sports business models you don't uh, sports media business models you don't really hear too much about it the only thing i really heard yesterday was my brother was telling me about how uh, teams are starting um, games at different times now because you know then they can get around restrictions on showing live games and streaming and everything and i think it's kind of interesting that the, the bigger the bigger you know, sports, particularly in the UK, I suppose because there is so much money involved to it and they're tied up in so much regulation, don't seem to be innovating in terms of audience consumption habits quite as fast as the smaller sports. So there is, for instance, a streaming service for um, dance sport. I think it's called DSI TV, where people will pay a sort of 120 quid a year subscription model to go on and watch dances, you know, from the competitive dance scene. And, you know, you look at what the kind of WWE is doing around WWE Network, or you look at what kind of the BBC and BT Sport and ESPN are doing around esports now. And there does seem to be much more innovation going on around the kind of these smaller, more niche sports than there are around the kind of the bigger ones that, you know, the, your rugby's, your footballs, kind of all that kind of stuff. Mm. I suspect a lot of that is to do with access as well, I think, because these sports have got so, become so advanced, at least in, in a sort of in a money-making sense, it's so hard for you to, to actually break into that scene. And I think, as a general rule, innovation happens, like you say, at the periphery. And if there is no space for a periphery within within the major sports, then how's it, how's it ever going to happen? So, and, and one of the reasons I started this podcast was precisely this, because no one is having the sorts of conversations that... that that you guys on the Media Voices podcast are, are having or that Richard Deitch is having. And America, America seems just a lot more ahead of the curve on this. I again, I don't know why that'd be the case. But interestingly, when you look at America and you look at the the broadcasting um, outlets or, or platforms that they have, they are much, much more available and open than they are in the UK. So you can you can watch all the games for, ML, for MLB, the baseball, on on a platform which is owned by MLB, 
you pay, I don't know however much you pay in the US, but it's like $100 a year and you can watch all baseball games and there's 162 games per team. So whereas in this country, if you want to watch all the games of in the Premier League, you have to have subscription to three different outlets, uh, BT, Sky and, and Amazon now, uh, the seven tranches of, of broadcast packages. So you could potentially have seven different outlets doing all of those things. If you want to watch Spanish football or Italian football, you then have to get 11 sports on top of that. And before you know it, you're sort of having to, you're having to pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds a month just to, to watch football. So I guess, I wonder whether or not you think that would sort of buy into that idea that, well, why do we need to innovate? Because people want us people want to get hold of what we're doing we don't need to we don't need to generate interest in this thing so 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 we're there which obviously these other sports at the periphery they're wanting to generate interest and so they're making it as easy as possible for fans to enjoy the sport yeah definitely i think that you've touched on some really interesting things there one of them is something we've we spoke about earlier which is kind of this um this idea that you can only pay for so many for access to so many things and that fragmentation you know you mentioned kind of the amazon deal which was what this summer this summer yeah. which is kind of fragmenting that still further. Uh, and something I think is even more relevant to kind of wider media business models is that everybody's talking about engagement. Engagement is this kind of woolly word, this kind of woolly term that doesn't actually mean anything, but has you know huge implications for how, where publishers are trying to kind of direct their attention. And it is to those kind of highly engaged, highly niche, highly specific fandoms and fan bases, which obviously kind of football in particular has in spades. You know, each team could in theory have a kind of a, were it not for all these regulations in this red tape, they could in theory have their own you know, streaming services. They could they could effectively sell you know, access to that kind of stuff. But I suppose because of, and that, that's what everybody is trying to get, is trying to reach and activate those kind of hugely intense, hugely uh, lucrative and valuable fan bases. But it feels like there's not really, um, feels like it's you know, possibly it's just because of kind of the, the provenance and the history of, of how we've consumed sport um, in this country. Doesn't seem to be kind of much going on in that sense. I think that's partly why we saw the kind of the, the E-Premier League get announced earlier this, this year is because that is an opportunity there for those kind of the big Premier League teams to actually reach, you know, this kind of very lucrative esports audience without actually kind of going through the strictures of, you know, of dealing with the BBC and ITV and everybody like that. Mm, yeah. And interestingly, the company that I was most recently working for before I went freelance was a company that was trying to make it as a sports media outlet. And then they got bought out by Gfinity, which is one of the biggest esports outlets. And and they, they, they sort of style themselves as an esports solutions provider. So they're consulting on things, but they're also running tournaments and stuff. And they're... Um, I think they recently announced a, a deal with the Premier League as well. So they again, you can the scalability, and that's the thing for these things. They they assume that you can take esports and you can scale them so much more than you can with football. Like a football team can play play twice a week, but you get these guys playing esports like ten hours a day at the week at the weekend, and people watch it, and, and so you you can monetize that far more easily. So um, I wonder I wonder whether or not that will will impact on on sports broadcasting as well. Is there anybody who you think is doing particularly innovative stuff around sports media? Yes, but in terms of innovation, I think what's being done is not so much smart or savvy from a media side, uh, from, from in, in a media sense. It's more from maybe sort of fan engagement or design sides of things. So a lot of people would point you towards someone like Copper90, who are a company who rather than focusing on what's going on in the pitch itself, are, are, they're all uh, all of their stuff is 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 sort of pointing towards fan 
engagement. So they'll go to big derby matches and they'll film the experience and it'll, and it's, it's all about this sort of like re-authenticating human experience in this sort of modern world that we live in, a sort of fractured society where no one likes each other and no one can talk <laughs> and everyone ignores each other on the, on the tube. You say, oh, look, here's, here's the, here's an experience that you can have where something like common humanity is. And so their whole business model is designed around that tapping into that kind of need for people and that ability for football to sort of uh, unlock us emotionally <laughs> in some sense. So they're doing that kind of thing. And, and you know, that, that sort of stuff is, is big because you then end up being able to sell yourself to brands. So these guys will say, oh, we'll have, we'll, we'll record a video and we'll, we'll, we'll allow Adidas to use it in there. And, and so Adidas can be like, look at us. We're so authentic. We, here's, here's, here's some kids kicking a football around in South London. And, and so you go from there. So yeah, that's, I think that would be one, one aspect of doing it. Another actually interesting outlet is a friend of mine runs this, an organization called Goal Click. And what they do is they send disposable cameras around the world and get people to take photos and write about just their experiences of football around the world, which is, it's, it's, That's one, a it's really, really nice idea. Yeah, it's really good. And what they, what they've done basically, they, they've set up, it was essentially a charity, but as a media, like an out, outward facing media company, I think there's going to be a move in that direction as well, where you sort of, you're thinking about, you're, you're running a media company, but you're not sort of hammering away on the profits in the same way. And again, they, they, they get brand, um, sponsorships as well. Um, because they can, again, they're doing like authentic football stuff too. So that, I think that, that's the kind of the most interesting yet in terms of the media side of things. In terms of, in terms of design stuff, you get, you get companies like Tifo Football who are, they do basically, uh, YouTube videos. And so they've, they've sort of cornered that market, but they do like whiteboard videos, but highly stylized. They have their own unique style. Um, they're informative. They're five minutes long. So you can, you can, they're, they're quick as well. So, um, I think again, there it's, they've sort of tapped into that market and they've been able to, I guess like, the question for them is, and I interviewed Alex Stewart, who's, uh, the head of strategy there about that. And they're thinking about how do we monetize this in, in increasingly, um, progressive ways but again the rest of the the rest of the stuff that i encounter most of the time is either old media trying to shift shift its way into the new media or new media sort of absolutely hammering away on the content in a bid to stay with its head above water and i think because this football is just always going on there's always games on every night there's not really the time to think about how you might do journalism in maybe a slowed down or pared back way. Yeah, you need that breathing room. It's, it's one of those things where you can't, unless you do occasionally take a step back and put your head above the parapet, you really can't change your thing. You can't you know, alter your, your path forward. What do you think about what sort of Joe Media is doing around how they're kind of reaching audiences, you know, using kind of sport as this touch point, but then talking to them more directly than maybe the legacy media actually does. Joe have kind of this, this live studio, or, well, they have a live, um, they have live streams, you know, where they will actually yeah. go out and they will talk to audiences about, about sport in a way that you don't necessarily see the kind of the, kind of the big legacy players, the big broadcasters doing. You know, it's, it's a really sort of digital, it's a kind of this digital idea that you should be in constant communication with an audience, but really, you know, kind of married to this, to this sports coverage idea. Joe are really interesting because they've obviously sort of segued into football from, I think they were more general. I don't know which way around it was, but what I've seen from them recently is that they've started bringing in, I guess, what you would call old media personalities. So they brought in Melissa Reddy as their head of, I think she's head of football there. And I think what's really interesting about that is before what you would see is you would see 
uh, sort of young guys straight out of university coming into this media company. It's sort of one of those places where you get the sense that it's actually really hard work to work for them because everyone's young and there's no, you know, there's no one old there. So it feels as though you work, use it as a stepping stone to get somewhere else. But what they're doing now is that that, that traffic is coming the other way. Um, you're, you're seeing people from, what you would expect, expect, what you consider to be the old media sort of taking jobs there and, and the, there being a realisation that actually they can tap into that. And for me, I think what's the really interesting thing that will happen in sports media is that obviously the old media is always going to try and buy up what the stuff that the new media does well. Um, but I think there's going to be a, a narrowing of that, of that market because I think there's going to be arms of the old media that are just going to die out because they are just... They are dead in the water as it is, um, and so what we'll see is the old the old media moving towards the new, and the new media moving towards the old. And I think Joe are probably the, the classic example of, of a media company that is a new media company moving towards becoming more of a of a, an established old media outlet. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose that that process isn't going to be hastened by that fragmentation of you know broadcast rights and kind of where you know where you can actually consume this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah and you're getting Bleacher Report uh, yeah. in the US, for example. And they're another classic example of that new media moving towards old media. They've now got the Champions League rights for the US, and they're basically they're basically just punditing it from a, like a shed somewhere <laughs> in, in America, you know. And 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 you get eleven sports as well who are doing that really well in the sense that they've realised that they can't compete with BT Sport or Sky Sport, so they they're buying up small rights around around various countries. So they have the Premier League rights in Indonesia, um, but rather than spending the amount of money that Sky TV spent to, to broadcast a match, they'll take two cameras rather than 35. They'll film the thing on two or three cameras. Um, they won't have famous pundits from the football media. They'll get, they'll get, um, people who are like pop stars in Indonesia doing the punditry as well. So they're oh, thinking I'd listen through. to that. I would listen to the hell out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but th- that's what they're, I think that's what the, 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 the idea now is, look, the, the old media are always going to do the old media better than the new media. How do we, how do we compete with them in a way that is sort of stepping on their toes, but also thinking outside the box? And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that going on in the next few years. But a lot of the time, I don't, I don't know whether or not it seems as though there's sensible strategy going on. It sometimes just seems as though they're throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. But, <laughs> Maybe that's what media always is. That's yeah. the wider media. Yeah, that, that, that seems to be. I mean, this 2018 has been a year where, you know, there's been huge cuts. Nobody's really had the money to do that. But I think, you know, 2019, people are going to find themselves on much firmer footing and we are going to see some much more experimentation there. Right, we should move on. I had a question which was, what do you say the best things about the media in the UK or what would you say the worst things about the media in the UK? So, the, I mean, the best thing about the media in the UK is that it does have, um, it, it has a, you know, a sense of history to it. Yeah, but at the same time, that is in a lot of ways the, the worst thing about it. You know, kind of, it is still very much a kind of old boys club. You see that a lot of the a lot of places are so set in the ways that they're really not experimenting to the to the to the extent that they should be. You know, I think one of the biggest threats actually to to the media in the UK is that so many of the kind of the old boys who are in charge don't want to rock the boat too much because they will inevitably affect their pension. And it's kind of a it's this impossible situation to find the, themselves in where they can't innovate because. The, you know the higher ups won't let them do it because it will risk the share prices and that will then affect their kind of the payout so that kind of the the legacy in, in the, to an extent definitely works against it i think that we are going to see such a huge shakeup particularly towards you know 2022 if you look at where audience consumption habits are going you know if you if you just look at the amount of audience consumption habits that go mobile only we're going to see some a huge amount of experimentation and that is something that i think the the, the uk media does almost better than anywhere else 
if you look at what the BBC is doing around kind of VR, in fact, what the VR, the, what the BBC announced around reaching people on the world service in VR, you know, they announced that today. And that's just one of many, many examples of how they're genuinely experimenting, trying to reach places, uh, trying to reach people in ways that haven't been done before. So I think that kind of that culture of experimentation is is definitely there. It's nascent and it definitely needs to improve. And, you know, part of that is kind of because they're sat, saddled with these huge legacy costs. But that's it's a kind of fascinating place to be. And it's a fascinating place to watch as well, just because it does change so rapidly. Just an interesting aside again from from there. I saw today that the head of Reach, I think it was, had had hammered the BBC. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. And he basically saying, "Oh, you're stepping on our toes. You're doing this sort of stuff that we're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing the stuff that you're supposed to be doing." It's as a big broadcasting outlet. I don't know what your thoughts on that were. I think to some extent that's absolutely true. If you look at what you know typically appears on the front page of the BBC homepage, you know, the kind of the most read, it does tend to be this kind of populist pablum, you know, kind of lowest common denominator stuff that the BBC really shouldn't necessarily be doing. You know, they should be the ones who are redoing some some hard hitting investigative stuff. They should be the ones who are doing, you know, huge data pieces to actually look at trends that a lot of the kind of the current nationals don't have the resources to do, but the BBC kind of has a remit to do. So I think he's he was exactly right to point out that you know the BBC is. I mean, it's like it's a lead weight on the on the media industry in this country anyway. You know, I love the BBC for the most part, but it's it does distort the media landscape so much just because they can do for free what costs. Well, they can give out for free what the other places should in reality be able to charge for if it weren't for the BBC. So it's, it's such a fascinating country to actually write about because the BBC distorts it. In fact, talking to media pundits from other countries, you kind of get the impression that they go, how is this legal? <laughs> you know, how, is this, how is this allowed at any point? It's funny, isn't it? Because essentially the BBC is a subscription model outlet. Yeah, but people don't think about it that way. People think about it as, yeah, people think about it in the same way that you think of, you know, the water coming out of their taps as being free, when of course it's not, but it's kind of just as integral to people's lives for the most part. And at the same time, you're saying, look, you expect the BBC to be doing this great journalism because they're being paid. That's the whole argument about subscription model websites. If they're they're essentially a subscription model website, not agreeing to the rules of of that sort of contract that you have when you're a consumer using them but yeah exactly and you can see why they would you can see why they would try to do that kind of stuff because there is you know it's impossible to get that balance right between what is in the public interest and what interests the public and it's only natural that every so often the bbc would wobble and maybe fall too far the other way but yeah it's kind of i think it's it's kind of undeniable that the bbc even the very existence of the BBC does have a detrimental effect on kind of the the ability of the nationals, kind of the regionals to monetize themselves. And you see that the BBC is kind of taking steps to address that and what they're doing around local journalism, but it's not, yeah, it doesn't seem to be there yet. And until they kind of, this this culture change around what they actually produce and what they actually broadcast, then I don't think you're going to see many people uh, argue with him. (laughs) Yeah. I've taken up way too much of your time. So I'll I'll ask you your final, I'll ask you a final couple of questions because I close the, every podcast with a question about the future and you you said in our email exchange oh that's a that's a good idea i wish we did that but we yeah you we obviously should, have we your end that one but your your ending is also great on the media voices podcast at the end of a an uh, interview you ask the interviewee what's something good that they've read recently so i'm going to ask you that question what's something good that you've read just so that you can be put on the spot and realize how tricky it is for it is for- it's ridiculously <laughs> tricky yeah and I, I mentioned that um that piece from the atlantic which was yeah. about sort of the 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 politicization of of attention what else have i read today that i thought was really interesting there's huge amounts of debate around kind of misuse of user data you know everything from the cambridge political scandal down to you know alexa uh well amazon registering a patent for you know alexa to listen constantly for altered emotional states you know with the fear that people will then use that to you know hawk you prescription 
medicine, which is terrifying. It's like <laughs> all the worst parts of Blade Runner with none of the benefits of Blade Runner. <laughs> none of the noir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, uh, there was a, a piece yesterday from you know, recording perspective uh, on Naked Security that said, Facebook wants to reveal your name to the weirdo standing next to you. And it was about sort of how Facebook is going to start using geolocation to recommend friends to people, which is kind of terrifying. If you look at you know all the examples that they actually give in the piece about when Facebook recommendations have gone wrong, they talk about Facebook uh, recommending um, kind of an, an, another anonymized member of a of a group who were providing support to suicidal teens to one another. You know when, when it should have been completely anonymous, and it kind of builds on everything that I think Reply All the podcast had a great example couple of examples of exactly that before and so it's kind of a really good explanation of what exactly kind of facebook has patented here and and why it's a potential misuse of user data but it, it for me it kind of opened up all these other discussions around well you know that this this happened which is that dating app which does exactly this you know it pairs you with people who are you know located to you geo- close to you geographically and it to me it sort of seemed to be indicative of this wider debate around what is tacit use of user data which is you know necessary for these platforms it's effectively the commodity on which these platforms have grown versus kind of allowing audiences to control what user data they actually you know give so it's a sort of um a sort of timely reminder that a we live in the worst of all possible futures at the moment but also b that kind of there's that misuse of user data is kind of it's going to become even more of a flashpoint over the next couple of years i think yeah it's terrifying i think it's the it's the, the steps that have, have been introduced i think into facebook data gathering because so i bought a pair of glasses this week i, I literally went into Specsavers, looked at it for a pair i like got that pair paid for it by card that's the that's the extent of my research into that pair of glasses i don't look at glasses ever on on the internet and yet all of my ads now are about glasses and it's literally for me paying on my card with with for, for that for that pair of glasses and that just ter- that terrifies me because you know that there is no there's no sort of buffer at all is there there it's just it's simply right you've done this thing somewhere else that it kind of links electronically therefore it's open season for us no it's bizarre and it's it's one of those things where it, in theory it should be a good thing you know you, you people should be really enthused about targeted advertising because it might actually show you something you want but it's not there yet and it's coming across as really creepy and things like the kind of that alexa pattern and this new facebook pattern just serve to underscore how kind of thoroughly the the platforms will can almost disregard um, user sentiment if it means that they can potentially make money further down the line. And obviously, there's no guarantee that they will put that patent into effect, that they'll put it into kind of practice. But it's just scary knowing that this is something that is technically possible and that they are thinking about. So it was a really it was an interesting read because it kind of brought all those uh, those those thoughts, but also because you know kind of I'm a big fan of horror literature and this scared the hell out of me. So it's just a kind of a <laughs> A nice emotive thing. It's nice when work and pleasure overlap, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, final question then. What do you see the future of the media being? How do you see yourself, Media Voices Podcast, fitting in that? And and maybe a few closing words on what you see the sports media learning from this? Yeah. So I mean, there's we, we touched on it earlier, actually. I think I see it as being smaller, more niche, more valuable audiences. And I think that we, we've effectively seen the last of the kind of the big news giants, um, you know, kind of dwindling audiences, people going online, relatively, you know, nascent um, uh, propensity to pay for news online means that we, we're not going to see these huge legacy companies exist to the size and to the scale which they once did. But that's no, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it, it, it increases the the potential that people will pay for these smaller scale, more niche, more valuable and much more targeted um endeavors you know like look like the information or decorrespondent for instance which we spoke about earlier so this kind of 
much more niche, much more engaged audiences, I think, are going to be the future for at least the next sort of five, ten years. I think you'd be insane to make any predictions much beyond that at this point. But the um, and so I think that Media Voices kind of fits in that. In that, you know, we are very, very small. We 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 might have slightly outsized influence in just because of who our contacts were before we launched. You know, we we do know some good people who have really helped us share it and grow it. So we might have slightly outsized influence, but we 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 don't particularly want to be huge. We just kind of want to be niche. We want to be valuable to a smaller but much more engaged um, level of audience. And I think that you know it's kind of I know much much less about sports media than you do, but I, I think maybe there's opportunity there, even if it won't necessarily go that way for kind of these these in, these individual teams how even down to sort of the individual players to grow their brands based on kind of the, these niche audiences who are much more interested in them say than sort of a wider uh, industry that you know much of the content isn't necessarily for them you know, i think that one of one of my big bugbears was the idea that kind of uh, video game magazines were failing well they weren't necessarily failing it's that they they lost their purpose you know people don't own just the one console anymore so it's kind of to have you know uh, Endgame sold, you know, specifically around Nintendo consoles, was a losing proposition because people don't consume games that way anymore. So it's less about kind of these huge mass market audiences and really finding the ones that are niche and kind of really actually matter to your you and your business models. And I think those sorts of niche outlets are going to find it much easier to monetize than than these bigger outlets as well, right? Yeah, certainly. And you can see that with uh, niche print magazines, which you know we we spoke about. In fact, I think it must have been God like three years ago. I wrote an article basically arguing that the future of print was niche titles. And that was only reaffirmed the other week when I went up to, to MagFest and saw some of these incredible niche print titles that shouldn't, <laughs> that by right shouldn't be able to sustain themselves that have found an audience and are really doing it. You know, I, I, bought, I bought one for uh, my girlfriend that was just called Dog. And all it was was a sort of, and it was the Pomeranian issue. And it was just a collection. It was a really high quality magazine just about Pomeranians. <laughs> and you would have thought that that shouldn't necessarily have worked. But and yet it's found an audience and it's really kind of, it's growing. It's, it's, it's insane to think about unless you actually think about who your audience is and what they will actually pay for now. Chris, thanks so much for, for this conversation. I've had a really good good time. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on. What way can people follow you? What way can people consume the Media Voices podcast? Yeah, so Media Voices is available on iTunes. It's available on Spotify now. They can go to voices.media where our archive is. Uh, we've just launched a bunch of transcriptions. So if you don't necessarily have the time to to go through and listen to a whole episode, we have all those, those um, episodes transcribed now. And they can find me on Twitter at Chris M. Sutcliffe. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. That's been really fun. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Matthew Barrett talk to us about goal click and responsible football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye. 